Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, I noticed nobody was moving around very much. Uh, <laughs> and so if you think Romans is daunting from down there, you must try it from up here. <laughs> so it's a little bit uh, difficult. So we, I want to just welcome you to Romans chapter 3. And I think that I'm going to ask you to do what Ross asked you to do. Let's just stand up. Father, we confess that we need your Holy Spirit to interpret your word to our hearts. Father, he inspired it. Men wrote it. And Father, we want to grasp it. And so we abandon ourselves to you and we say, Father, won't you come and break this to us? Make it alive and real to us. And Father, may it touch us and accomplish your work of grace inside of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We can sit down. So we're going to be quick. Um, Romans chapter 3 is very dense, and so there's a lot of content. And um, we're going to have to be in a hurry, so maybe I'm going to drop some stuff as we go along. But all of Paul's letters have special relevance to us. He was specifically called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and we are Gentiles. And so mastering Romans is one of the best things that you can do for you. Uh, you need to read it through as a whole, specifically uh, chapters 1 to 8. Do it over and over. Don't worry about not understanding. It will start to sink in um, and become real to you because Paul's presentation of the gospel in Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And it's designed to anchor your faith life in what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. So my Bible of choice for serious study is the New King James Version. I've grown up a little bit. Uh, I started on the old King James, uh, got a little bit redundant, but uh, it's very good and accurate. And to save you some hard work, uh, the scriptures should appear behind me as we get working through it. So as far as structure is concerned, a careful reading of the book of Romans, uh, or Romans chapter 3, sorry, quickly reveals that there are four sections, and the divisions and heading in the New King James are actually quite helpful. So there, there's the first section from verse 1 to 8, uh, which is actually an aside. Paul is dealing with some questions that were relevant in the context into which he was writing. Then in chapter uh, verse 9 to 20, he returns to his primary gospel theme and concludes his treatment of the judgment of God and the condition of the human race. And then in verses 21 to 26, he jumps right out of condemnation and he lands right in the heart of the gospel. And then finally, verse 27 to 31, he just drops to conclusions before moving on. In terms of fit, in chapter 1, Paul treats the judgment of God in a general sense. And surprisingly, he tells us that the root of the human problem is actually a refusal to acknowledge God and be thankful to him. 
which is, to me, just like really, really interesting. Then in chapter 2, he focuses in on the two main components, as we've heard, of the Roman church, the Jew and the Gentile, and he states that there's no difference. So the Jew is to be judged by the law of God written in tablets of stone, and then he makes a startling case by stating that the Gentiles are also going to be judged by the same law which is written in their hearts by God, the evidence of which is the operation of their conscience as a witness. And again, this is deep stuff, uh, very helpful for us. But the big thing about chapter 3 is that it actually concludes the judgment issue and it introduces the gospel or the good news issue. And so in the second section of chapter 3, Paul delivers a damning, very popular word at the moment, indictment, the Americans say indictment. I'm not quite sure which one you want to choose, but a damning indictment on the condition of the human being. And then in chapter 3, he pivots dramatically and he makes this massive declaration about God's provision through the gospel. So chapter 3 is a bridge between chapters 1 and 2, which is bad news, and chapters 4 to 8, which is all about God's good news in Jesus Christ. So now we can just drill down a little bit. And the first thing that I need to say about this is that we must recognize that not all Scripture is equal. Uh, And um, that might be a little bit controversial for you. I'm not saying that we can disregard or discard any of the Word of God, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes that we are to rightly divide the Word of God, by which he means that we we are meant to attach the right weight to the Word that we are written has been written to us, sorry. And as an example, the part at the beginning of the chapter um, about the advantage of the Jew doesn't carry the same weight for me and you as Gentile believers as the part that treats what God has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And so we, we just got to get that if we're going to be able to work our way through and get an overall view of what Romans is all about. So verse 1, what advantage then has the Gentile or the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? And so that was a burning issue back then, not so much for me and you, but it's still interesting. So Paul's answer is, much every way chiefly that to them were committed the oracles of God. And so, as you've heard repeatedly, I think Paul is doing something very smart. He's pointing away from the divisive issues of ethnicity, culture, religious practice, which are of no advantage in the things of God, and then he points us upwards towards God, and he makes reference to his oracles, The living God-breathed word, the proximity to which was the advantage that the Jews had because it is able to make us wise unto salvation. Okay, so just two practical things from here is don't ever downplay the value of growing up in a Christian family. Because God might have just been using that proximity to sow seeds into you that are going to come true a little bit later as he works with you. And then the other thing is this, that 
parents ought to be, should be, living oracles, planting seeds of God into their children that can grow and be nurtured as God then works with them. And, and we've seen that wonderfully in our three boys as they have had their own faith journey and came and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so then in verse 3, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief, their lack of response of faith, make the faithfulness of God towards us without effect? Certainly not. So you mustn't miss this because it's so significant. You see, it's a fatal mistake to limit God's faithfulness to the state of your faith. Did you get that? Yeah. And so God's faithfulness doesn't emerge from our obedience. God's faithfulness emerges from the integrity of his own character. Yes. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Then in verse 5, Paul touches down on another issue, more of a Gentile thing, it would seem from their philosophers. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, how could it? What should we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. And again, he says, certainly not. By which, means, by which he means God is not unjust. It would be impossible for him to be, because if he were then, how will God judge the world? And so you'll notice he doesn't actually really answer the question. He sort of fudges it a little bit. And then the next section is quite interesting as well. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we have slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, the condemnation is judged. So here's just a simple takeaway from this. Paul doesn't even bother to counter this sort of silly proposition that is being presented from these Gentile people. He brushes it aside, which is what I recommend we all do graciously when people come to you with contentious stuff that isn't really helpful or builds us up. Okay, are you still with me? You're looking very serious. So you've got to just, I know, <laughs> this is rather heavy, but let's just smile occasionally, hey? Okay, verse 9 <laughs> in the second section. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So this is Paul reverting back to the main points of chapters 1 and 2, and he reminds us that wherever we fit, we are in the category under sin. And then he reaches back into the Jewish scriptures to point out the fact of the universality of sin, and he just applies it blanketly to everybody to which he's writing. And we can't really do justice to this, but we're going to just make a point or two as we read it. Verse 10. As it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. So we're intellectually bankrupt. 
That's what God, uh, Paul is getting at. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No, not one. We're behaviorally bankrupt. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose tongue is full of bitterness and cursing. And if I remember correctly, it was Jesus who said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if we listen carefully, we're going to see how our speech betrays our ethical bankruptcy. And then verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery is in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And so the way we live just continues to bankrupt us in terms of a relationship with God. And then finally in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so because we're devoid of reverence, we have a spiritual bankruptcy. And so the whole picture that Paul is planting is really very, very gloomy. And there's a lot of stuff that can be teased out of this, but we just need to not lose our way. So verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, because the Jews had been boasting. And then he says, and all the world may become guilty before God. And so Paul is very clear. He says the law speaks specifically to the Jews, but its scope is broad, and it declares in its conclusion that all of the world is guilty before God, and that includes you, and it includes me. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so this was the thing that the Jews were constantly tripping over, and we trip over as well. It's like our default setting. We try to be good so we can get to God, and it just doesn't work. So the law isn't a means of getting right with God. Whether it's in stone or in heart, the law is a means to bring conviction of sin and an understanding of our guiltiness as we stand before God in our own naturalness and human state. Verse 21 to verse 26 are incredibly theologically dense. Paul drops in salvation concepts in like quick-fire rapid succession. And the manner in which he is does this, and this is so interesting, the manner in which he does this suggests that the terms were commonly used and understood in that early church, which is a serious challenge, I think, to, to you and me. It probably means that we need to brush up a little bit on our theological literacy. So we need to understand the terms that describe what God has done and accomplished within us, through the work of the Lord Jesus. We need to have these things clear in our head. And so before we just go on into the next few verses, I just want to point out that there's a, a word play that Paul uses in, these next, in this next section. And it, he does it in order to connect a series of truths that create a big picture view of what he wants us to get connected to. And so in verse 19, he says, all the world may be guilty 
before God. Verse 22, that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all. Verse 23, for all have sinned. Verse 24, that all may be justified. Can you see what he's doing? It's not only an inclusiveness in terms of sinfulness, it's also an inclusiveness concerning God's graciousness, his mercy, and his kindness towards us. And so we need to get this right. It's not that God just wants to make us feel bad. It's actually that he wants to convince us of sin so that then he can point us to what Jesus has done for us and justify us. And for me, this is just the pure genius and goodness of God. He declares all guilty, not that he may judge, but that he might also have the right to declare all justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And for me, this just puts God in such a, a, a wonderful, lovely light. It displays his nature and his character. And it's so far removed of that lightning and thunder, isn't it? It's just mercy and it's kindness and it's goodness and grace towards us. Verse 21. But now, by the gospel, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now, again, the language is so interesting. You lose a little bit of it in the NLT. But Paul is dropping a huge idea here. He is telling us that in the gospel, God shows himself righteous by providing us with righteousness, while providing us with righteousness. That would be better to say. Let me say that again just for clarity. In the gospel... God shows himself righteous while providing righteousness for us. And this is something that's really so important, but we'll come back to it just now. So he's saying righteousness is revealed now apart from the law. So the first imperative of the gospel is that it is not something that we work for and earn, but it is something that is given as a gift. It's righteousness apart from law-keeping. And we've got really no idea how liberating and how scandalous this really is. Because what Paul is saying is that righteousness can be without obedience. And righteousness can be given despite unrighteousness. Are you with me? And I think this is really, really profound. And we need to really let this sink into our hearts because what I really know is this, is that any time we stop enjoying being a Christian, it's because we're trying too hard. You know that. And we need... When, if I'm struggling, the first thing I do is I look at what I'm doing, and you know what I usually find? I'm trying just too hard. And I'm not resting in God. And uh, we need to revert to race. And so he, grace, sorry. So he says, righteousness apart from the law has come to us through the Lord Jesus, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So once again, Paul is dropping this massive concept down and he doesn't even explain. <laughs> 
And that's the thing. But what he's doing is he's pointing to the Old Testament witness of God that there was going to come a day when a new and a living way would burst into view. And so we just think about it quickly. Adam and Eve, a seed was promised that would bruise the serpent. Abraham, a seed who would bless all of the nations. David, your seed will live on your, be on your throne and his throne will endure forever. Isaiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so the gospel was never plan B because of a failure of plan B. It was always in the background, always spoken to, always pointed to, and it was always plan A in the heart of God from eternity. And that's something that we also just need to get our heads around. Then in verse 22, he says, it's been witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and in all or on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so Paul just deposits it. Righteousness apart from the law through faith in Jesus. All have sinned and all are made right through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase, on all, or to all and on all, actually implies a lot more in the original Greek. And so a fuller rendering would actually say is that righteousness is placed into all and upon you all. And so the thing that we need to get about this is that righteousness from God is placed upon us to cover our shame and our stain and to give us confident access to a heavenly Father who loves us and has redeemed us. But righteousness is also placed inside of us as a new dynamic that orientates us and enables us to please and honor our heavenly Father. Now, Anybody who's been born again will know this experientially. I'm sure you, if you think about it. Because I know that when, on the day that I realized that Jesus Christ had died to save my life, something came alive. And it wasn't only a righteousness placed over me to cover me, it was a righteousness placed inside of me to free me from the sin that bound me, and to deliver me to be a God-pleasing, honoring human being. And that's an amazing thing, to have this change of dynamic that orientates you and enables you to just walk with God. And so Scripture says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse 24, Paul drops two loaded theological terms, which he links you see, justified and redemption. So justification is the legal right standing that is given to you by faith in Jesus Christ, by grace. And justification can be given to you because, it's the red, because of the redeeming sacrifice and the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 25, then, Paul goes and he drops another loaded theological term on us. And it's a term that I just love uh, because it's a whole doctrine. 
in a single word, propitiation. Have you heard of it? It's a magnificent concept. Paul writes that it is Jesus Christ whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. So propitiation only appears directly in two other texts in the New Testament, 1 John 2, verse 2, and 4, verse 10, which I'm going to read to you. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. So if you go to a dictionary, which I did and do regularly, it will tell you that propitiation means to be made propitious, which is very helpful, isn't it? (laughs) So I could explain this to you by saying that what Paul means is that God has sent a propitiator who has made propitiation so that he, God, could be propitiated so that he could be propitious. And I can just walk away and leave you to work it all out. (laughs) I mean, it's really, it's eh? (laughs) self-explanatory. Yeah, I, I love this stuff. It's really so good. Now, I've got to say that there's a specifically Old Testament and Jewish explanation of propitiation, which we're not going to do this evening because it would require like at least 15 minutes to be able to get into it. So I'm going to stick to the Gentile explanation if that's okay. okay? So that's you and me. So propitiation emerges from an understanding of the nature and character of God. You see, Romans is all about the righteousness of God. So what we could say is that righteousness is God's primary covering characteristic. Whatever he does in relation to us is always going to be righteous. All of his workings, all of his deeds, all of his judgments, whatever it is. But this is just like a little bit more complicated than it really first appears. You see, God is, besides the attribute of righteousness, he also has the attributes of love and mercy and grace. But then, as we dig a little bit more, especially into Old Testament, we see that on the other side of this, are these attributes of wrath and of judgment and justice. So to understand this, when God looks at sin, his response is wrath, judgment, and justice. But when God looks at sinners, his response is love, mercy, and grace. And so... In order to reconcile this conflict between his hatred of sin and his love for sinners, God chose to send his son as a redeeming sacrifice to pay our sin price. And this is, again, this is just so, so magnificent. And so at the cross, righteousness was satisfied Wrath and justice and judgment were dealt with 
in Christ so that righteousness could be released to us in love and mercy and grace. Have you got that? Is it good? Hey? And so this is the thing is that God, and that's what propitiation is all about. God making a way to do what he wanted to do without compromising his own God integrity. Because he couldn't just brush sin under the carpet, could he? He had to deal with it righteously. And so in terms of John chapter 3, verse 16, I'm going to just couch this to help us understand it a little bit. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that through the cross... Jesus bore the judgment, justice, and wrath of God so that we may not perish but experience his eternal love, mercy, and grace. And so what we're meant to see here is that propitiation is God satisfying his need for justice and judgment and wrath and he satisfies it through Christ so that he might then satisfy his love, mercy, and grace towards us. And that is just such an amazing and beautiful, beautiful concept. And so, and this is absolutely necessary. God had to do this because God could only make sinners into saints in a righteous way. And so in verse 26, Paul states it this way to demonstrate his righteousness that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I want you to let that just settle in a little bit on you. You see, this is why we can trust. Because God doesn't fudge. <laughs> he doesn't fudge. He had to be just to satisfy the demands of wrath, judgment, and justice. And he did it despite the price so that he may be able to satisfy his desire for love, mercy, and grace towards us. And so he loved enough to do exactly what he had to do so that he could justify you and me and be just in the doing of it. And I think that that is just magnificent. Verse 27, where is boasting that's excluded by the law of faith? The gospel humbles us in a wonderful way. Not where we feel pressed down, but where we feel lifted up. But it humbles us because it's all of him and none of us. Verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Verse 29, is he a God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So, Paul, at the end of all of this, you can't just resist another massive topic, drops it in on us. He says in verse 31, do we make the law void through faith? So do we just throw it away? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So what is Paul driving at here? He's driving at this. With righteousness all over us, working into us, and righteousness inside of us, working out of us, the law of God is going to naturally be worked out in our life and in the way that we conduct ourselves 
in the way that we live. Isn't that amazing? And so God, in a wonderful way, just brings us out of this place where we were in bondage to sin, and now we're actually totally free to serve him with the ability to be pleasing and God-honoring. And so the last thing that's worthy of note is this, that Paul takes two and a half chapters to conclude that all of the world is guilty before God, and then he takes four and a half chapters to conclude that nothing can separate us from the love of God.